Welcome to this episode of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. I'm Pastor George, and I'm excited about our guest today. He's a ruling elder in the PCA, but he is the author of uh, a new book called Dangerous Affirmations, The Threat of Gay Christianity. And so many people know the PCA has been for almost five years now in this debate over gay Christianity, side B Christianity, revoice theology, which was uh, my contention is it was it was actually started in the PCA, not side B, but but revoice. And um, M, uh, so this, his name is M.D. Perkins. Uh, it's not Mad Dog Perkins. I, I joked with him before. Yeah, get him smiling a little bit about that. Uh, what you say it was Michael David? Is that what you said? You're yeah. Sure. So M.D. Uh, but he's got a a, a really great. Um, he works for a great organization, but he's a ruling elder in a PCA. And so that's what's so cool about this. And so we are going to discuss uh, as we get to know MD a little bit about uh, what he does, who he works for, about his calling, but about what is this thing called Side B Gay Christianity and his book. And so with that, uh, MD, maybe introduce yourself and tell us who you work for, what church you serve at and where you live. Sure. Yeah. So um, I grew up here in Tupelo, Mississippi, which is northeast part of Mississippi. It's kind of right in between Memphis and Birmingham, two hours either mm-hmm. way on on Interstate 22. And uh, I'm part of Lawndale Presbyterian Church, PCA Church. It was actually the church that I grew up in because uh, I grew up here in Tupelo. And my dad is a ruling elder there, and I, I serve alongside him, which is a special and unique privilege. Yes, that's awesome. Wow, okay. And um, so I went to film school and uh, to study filmmaking and film production and always was interested in movies and, and that side of the production side and anyway bounced around the independent film industry ended up back in in mississippi and um and the ministry here american family association which has been in existence since 1977 founded by uh, a rural methodist minister don wildman who was concerned about morality and media and kind of the objectionable content that was just on television that he he suddenly looked around at himself and then at other Christians and was like, why aren't people as concerned about this and what this means about our nation, what this means about us as Christians that we just watch this without really thinking about it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. he, he did a number of different things to raise awareness about that issue, moved into dealing with issues of, of obscenity and decency and pornography, um, raising awareness about the proliferation of pornography in the 1980s, um, and uh, the homosexual agenda became a question as corporate America started to, to bow the knee more and more in the 90s and uh, marriage issues um, and uh, the need to protect that. So anyway, that's kind of the legacy of American Family Association, obviously, in the midst of the culture war and, and fighting many of these very individual battles that have larger significance in terms of the repercussion in society and for the church and for how people think about um, some of these issues of life and family and and um, and decency and um, and morality and things like that. I'm sure today with what's going on with streaming and the number of Christians that just are now streaming stuff uh, that never existed when, you know, when he started the AFA, I right. mean, that must be really killing him. 
Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, because when he started, there were three networks. And, um, you know, you had primetime television, and that was – and and those those airways were publicly owned, you know, it, to, to some degree. And so there was the the idea of people being publicly involved and, uh, and able to affect – um, change within those and having a right to, to speak into those things as, uh, as kind of public, public entities. Anyway, there, there was a lot tied in with that. And we're currently doing a documentary about his life and legacy mm. and the history of the ministry. So, um, you know, I'm still a film producer and, and the film production side of it is how I got into researching the, the aforementioned issues of gay Christianity, sexuality, and side B and revoice and all that because um, uh, the, the ministry here started to produce a documentary called In His Image, Delighting in God's Plan for Gender and Sexuality. You can uh. find it at inhisimage.movie or you can find it for free on YouTube uh, to watch the documentary. There's stories of, of people who've come out of the lifestyle and, and um, you know comments from, from theologians and pastors and apologists just talking about <laughs> these issues and how they affect people. And as a film producer on that, I started to um, I started to research. There were so many threads that we were trying to cover. We couldn't cover them all, but one of the threads that we wanted to at least emphasize or uh, point people pointed out to people was uh, the question of gay Christianity and the way that uh, the LGBT issues are coming into the church. And so we kept hearing about Revoice. I mean, this was we started production in in. Um, kind of fall of 2018 and uh, had heard about the revoice conference. I knew it, I knew it had taken place in a PCA church. I, I did not know much about it. Um, and so in January of 2019, I took up the task of just trying to understand it. I thought I would take an afternoon or two to just read into it a little bit. And in, in God's, Providence, uh, that was a thread that required a lot of pulling to really get to the bottom of, to even understand some of the, the ways that uh, language was being used. You know, was there a difference between same-sex attraction and sexual orientation? Was there, how did, uh, how were some of these different phrasings, what, what was carried along with it, you know, and what was actually being communicated? Because, in some places, you would see Wesley Hill say something over here, and he's he's one of the Revoice speakers. And then, uh, so in an article he would say this, but then in a in his book he would say this, but then on Twitter he would say this, and and they didn't all seem to completely mesh together. And so, yeah, you're you're highlighting the issue that we've that I've written uh, quite a bit on. Also, is the language issue, and uh, you know, it's easy to to call it postmodern and it is but it's a, it's a it's a re redefinition re-expectation on on how language is used and can be used and that's really big in this whole discussion and debate and so I'm glad you you're highlighting that right from the the beginning so yeah, yeah keep going yeah and and the the language issue has been part of this whole uh gay movement from from really the the founding of it to talk about that as an internal sensibility and desire, therefore the word homosexuality comes about to try and define this thing kind of internally and, and mentally rather than just as a, an external action that can be, that can be clearly uh, regulated, you know? So 
you know, that's that's the late 19th century. And uh, we've seen so many developments, even the word gay, you know, as opposed to homosexual and homosexuality and stuff like that. So, yeah, the the language component of this is impossible to pull to, to fully remove from the conversation. You can't talk about issues of of LGBT and, and homosexuality and transgenderism without dealing at some level with the language and the definitions and words and categories that have changed and shifted over time, even within the last several years. So, Right, right. How, how did you get to writing sort of your, your seminal piece there, uh, so, A Little Leaven? A Little yeah. Leaven was the... It was just me trying to understand mm -hmm. the whole side B question and the whole issue of revoice. Mm -hmm. Initially, I was just trying to write down the, the quotes and the, the, the statements and trying to summarize what they were actually saying as best as I could and as, as honestly as I could put it down. And then as I started to do that for my own just <laughs> peace of mind and trying to understand it, then as I was trying to explain it to other people, I, I felt I always needed to be able to bring uh, the scriptural issues and the, the concerns to bear within that. And so then I started to write out that to flesh out those ideas. And before I knew it, you know, I had thousands and thousands of words that I had written on this and could structure it into, into the different categories. And that was what, that was how a little leaven came about. What, what year was that? Well, it started in 2019, and yeah. in fact, I, I hit save on the first on the first draft of that in early May of 2019, and then it was a couple of weeks later that uh, Greg Johnson comes out as uh, as gay celibate in the in Christianity Today, and mm -hmm. that was when it hit me, and I realized this is not going away. This isn't leaving the PCA anytime soon. Was that right before the the 2019 General Assembly? Where he uh, where he went to the microphone and gave his testimony, yes. mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, you know, most uh, people listening to this are mostly going to be PCA, and so you know, twenty eight the, the the timeline, the public timeline of this because it goes back obviously a lot further, and especially in the PCA, it goes back further. But the public timeline is uh, in twenty eighteen Memorial Presbyterian Church hosts the first revoice conference and it started getting mentioned and uh before that because people saw the promotion of it and said what is this um side b or gay christian conference what does it mean and so greg johnson was on a number of podcasts trying to defend it and then we were all introduced to all this new language you know and yeah. it, it i think it's important to say that in those initial interviews he did not speak confessionally on these matters but he's said we've misunderstood him but the quotes i think stand for themselves you know he said i can't believe anybody would think you, you would have to repent of something you can't repent of right and to him that was the whole being gay piece and so he he was publicly speaking in ways that sounded very maybe roman catholic uh, where you, you can only repent of what you actually do. You don't repent of the sin nature you have. And that kicked off all kinds of discussions on what this theological word of concupiscence was. And our confession very clearly, uh, I didn't relook it. I think it's chapter six, though, talks about 
the sin nature we inherit and the actual sins that progress from them, both in thought, word, and deed, are we're responsible for. They are they are right. our sin. Uh, we, we may not ask for our sin nature. In fact, we don't ask for it, but we still are called to repent of that. And so he, he restructured what he said. But that was 2018, 2019 General Assembly. Uh, Greg had his his speech on the General Assembly floor, very emotional, very um, mm -hmm. I, I don't mean that he was emotional. It was an emotional moment, right. uh, very sort of transparent and, and kind of a raw look at, at a, a, the struggle of a man and his heart for people in this struggle. And, you know, my my heart went out to him, but it still raised all kinds of, of issues. He compared being a paraplegic or barren with the struggle. And so not only did a year ago before that, did he mix or conflate indwelling sin, but now he's conflating the miseries of this life with sin. So the confession will speak of, you know, that because of the fall, there are miseries in this life and there's actual, and, and those were not morally culpable for. So a paraplegic and somebody who's right. barren is, they're, they're just experiencing a fallen creation. And he was associating then that his sin nature was also uh, uniquely a part of the miseries of this life, as opposed to also something we're morally culpable for. And it's both. It, it's both. I, I understand he didn't ask for, you know, these desires and I didn't ask for the desires that I have yet. I'm, I'm completely responsible for them and to mortify them. I guess the last thing I'll say is it part of the history. Like I, I wanted to understand from Greg directly what he was saying. And so even though I'm thoroughly on the right side of the conversation, I, I found a lot of guys on the right were misrepresenting what he was saying post his clarification. So some people were saying like he was denying, like out, outright denying progressive sanctification, outright saying being like having this desire or this struggle wasn't a sin. And I do believe the language he used in 2018 would, would lead us to believe that's what he was saying, but he had clarified it. But anyway, my point was I reached, I have pages and pages of private messages with him that, you know, I'm not going to release because I, you know, I, I do believe they were private. Even when the AIC report came out, I asked Greg, what he believed about the AIC report before, you know, like the week it came out and he sent me a private Google doc I still have on his initial impressions of it. So my point is I really want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but increasingly his position and what he was saying, and particularly that language piece you talked about was indefensible. He would say one thing to the courts of the church or to the denomination, and he would say another thing out in the public, uh, public sphere. And so the way you and I connected is I've written quite a bit on this too, but mostly just blog type stuff that would get picked up. Part of that was a whole discussion or multiple discussions I had with our clerk of session, Brian Chapel, on how he was framing the debate. Because again, it's how this debate is framed is, is very important. And he since corrected how he was discussing these overtures coming out and what we're disagreeing about. Because, you know, I think most people in the denomination would agree like having a desire that you're mortifying is not disqualifying. It's how we're communicating about it and how we view ourselves in relation to it. The frustrating thing about this is there were so many different threads in so many different places. And that's what I was trying to do with a little leaven, because mm. if you just read 
the the published official book writing, you know, by Nate Collins and Wesley Hill. I mean that that presents one picture. If yes. you read the the blog posts on things like spiritual friendship, you know that presents another picture and gives you a, a fuller array of of some of the struggles and and questions and frustrations that people were feeling around this. But then if you look at the social media uh, interactions that people were having and the the tweets and the the Facebook posts, I mean that gives you a whole other flavor. And then there's the actual. Um, sessions that were happening at Revoice, and some people yep. were, were were responding specifically to uh, the 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 um, the sessions at the Revoice 18 conference when there was another conference in 2019 that had additional statements and things. Anyway, before you knew it, there was this whole mountain of of data and and statements and questions. Uh, and, and even Greg wrote a book and right. You know, it's, and that uh, gets add, added into the mix, right? Later, and and so yeah, it was. It's a pretty confusing tangle to try and and weave your way through. And then there was always the accusation from the side B folks that they were being misrepresented, which is why I, I tried to take great care initially to to present their arguments as as truthfully as as I could, but. Also, I'm taking your words at face value because I understand people are trying to communicate something. So when you use a specific yes. word, especially for guys like Greg Johnson, Wesley Hill, Nate Collins, I mean, these guys are PhDs. They know how to communicate. So I'm not going to assume that just when you – I'm going to assume that you are using words intentionally and that when you say something – that you're trying to communicate something. When you don't say something, you're trying to not reveal that or not communicate that. And so I, I took all of that very seriously. And so that's how I constructed the the Little Leaven paper that deals with the whole side B revoice issue in depth. And um, you know, to you know the, the the Bible the Bible says, "Let your yes be yes and your no be no." The Bible says that God is not a God of confusion, and all this stems from this missional philosophy of ministry that's that it's this hyper contextualization such that you can speak in ways that uh one way to one group and another way to another group and you could say well it has it's the context and the problem is there is actually they call for nuance but they're actually not adding nuance because nuance brings out the, the the distinctions and the differences in a sophisticated way such that somebody knows what you're talking about. And they routinely speak with no nuance, right. <laughs> you know. And so but but go into the the side B, like what is for people that don't understand the side A, side B discussion and what revoice theology is uh, go, go into that. Well, when people have talked about gay Christianity, they're generally thinking of what we have labeled or has been labeled side A or just gay affirming theology that says, um, you know, to some degree, the Bible affirms this, that it's okay to, to live out a, a gay lifestyle. It's okay to pursue a homosexual marriage um, and that in whatever way they want to, to frame it, whether Paul was wrong or Paul actually meant this, or however they want to to revise mm. the historical position, uh, they're doing so. So that's that's side A. But the side so like D, like a Matthew Vines Matthew Vines, theology John and the gay Christian 
Uh, right. The, the, those kinds <laughs> of statements. Explaining uh, away the Bible. The, the, they call it six proof texts or five. I, I forget what it yeah, is. Like yeah, there's six clobber passages is what they talk about. Right. Yeah. And so if we just understood those in their context and we understood the love ethic of the Bible better, then we would treat gay people better and we would be more affirming and inclusive and we would um, – the the church would reflect what the mainline progressive church looks like, basically. Right. And then the side B position is is basically it, some of the some fundamental ideas about homosexuality are the same between both groups. Basically, the idea that you were to some degree born gay and that that cannot change despite your best efforts. Like they might give a little caveat, like it might change or there might it. There's the possibility, but not really with any expectation that it ever would. Or so, so they say the desires, like Greg would say, like the desires can lessen, but you never really make a switch from this box to this box. H has he said that the desires could lessen? Because I haven't heard him say that. I've I heard him talk about like my my orientation hasn't changed one iota since I've become a Christian. Um, so. Right. He, you're right. So again, there's the language thing. I think he's, I mean, he, he's affirmed that we make, we make progress. I think what he, he said, and, and I think maybe what he would mean by that is. He might mean like I, the, the lustful I, desires. And, the and lust, like right. Just, so to summarize the side B issue, because let me just do that. It, it holds that to some degree, uh, homosexuality is innate and immutable. It can't change. You just have to find a way to. Uh, deal with, or uh, the language that's often used is to steward your sexuality um, and to steward it not toward um, rightful marriage and family, but to steward it toward singleness specifically and to try and remain celibate and to not seek out these things. But if you stumble or fall or whatever, like it's okay because there's grace there. And um, so that's that's kind of the, the side B case is um uh i guess it, it's i mean revoice is intended as kind of a discipleship kind of movement of people with similar experiences talking to people with those same experiences and helping together to cultivate this overall sense of community and camaraderie between people who feel like they've been alienated or rejected or overlooked or oppressed by the the heteronormative straight church and so it there it, it does cultivate this whole victimhood mentality and this um this frustration with the status quo and yeah and it's it's now also adopt uh you know included the t um yeah. The, yeah, the, the trans and so uh you know and what i want our listeners if, if you're new to this discussion this is not about um not providing support and love for um, for people, the the issue with side B is it creates it's a it, so to put it in theological terms because I keep hearing from particular pastors in the PCA this isn't a theological issue. Well, when you study systematic theology, you study a, a one of the categories or headings is anthropology, which is what is the nature of man of of mankind, and so. Side B creates a different view of anthropology based on a different ontology. Ontology is the nature of being. And so it, it creates a category of personhood. Mm -hmm. There's this category of person. And Greg will say things like God can change that. Uh, 
but he he doesn't make that as a normal part of sanctification. It becomes a supernatural act beyond the normal path of sanctification for it to be changed because this is the the category you're in. And I've had these discussions, arguments, debates for four years with guys in the PCA claiming that side B is simply a person could have this struggle, but they believe in the biblical sexual ethic. And I've routinely said, that's not what it is, you know, and they want to point back to some 1990s definition of when side B came out Mm -hmm. as a reaction against the side A position. And I'm fine with, with saying that. Okay. When it first came out, people were saying, no, the desires are real, but we have to live within the biblical sexual ethic. That's not what it is today. So it's, it's dishonest and deceptive. And I'm saying that here publicly, that if you're saying that you're being dishonest and deceptive to what the term is today. And and I've asked Greg this publicly, and I have the screenshots in the public discussion. I said, Greg, if what you're saying is true, then Rosaria would have no problem saying side B is, is fine. And Beckett has come out strongly against side B. And, um, he said, well, what makes Rosaria's position different is she rejects orientation as a category. Right. So by implication, Greg views orientation as a category. Now, the question is a category of what? Well, Greg is very careful. He said PhD, very smart. He, he didn't tell you a category of what. But Rosaria tells you what she rejects the orientation as a category of right on her website. And that's where Greg's getting it from, as a category of personhood. Mm-hmm. And so... Greg and Nate and these people view orientation as a, not as a struggle that one has to live with, but a category of personhood. Right. And that's, that's the harmful piece of this because what it does is, and just to bring it pastorally, you know, Abigail Schreier in that great, uh, great book, I'm forgetting the title. Do you remember the title of her book? Uh, Damaged Goods. Something like, yeah talks about how we've destroyed a generation with trans ideology. And anecdotally, you know, even I've talked to progressive pastors here in Winston-Salem, which is not far from me, who said in in his own daughter's middle school, 50% of the girls identify as as something other than straight Mm -hmm. and female, you know. And the statistics show a 100% increase in this for that demographic. Uh, And I I have the stats in one of my articles. Something like uh, 40% of girls and 30% of, of boys in middle school don't identify as their their gender and, and being straight. And so we have destroyed a generation. Yeah. And the best that side B ideology could give a kid in the church who's struggling with this is to tell them, you know, they, they come up with a question. And I, I see this all the time. I've, I've seen it in my own church, but I've seen it online in trying to minister to people in certain groups where they say their kid says, well, I had these feelings or I'm not sure how to re- understand this. The best that side B ideology can give that kid is, well, that might be who or what you are, mm-hmm. but you don't have to live that way. Right. And that is a really hopeless thing to tell somebody. This might be who you are. That might be how you're made. That That is not a scriptural way to to tell somebody, you know, what I tell these kids is, and, and I have, is, well, that's a real a, a real question you may have, 
but that's not who you are. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the truth is mo- most kids in middle school have all kinds of struggles. If they're not popular, if they're struggling with, uh, even kids that are popular are struggling with being accepted. That doesn't mean you're having a crisis of identity of your gender, but the culture today is telling them to explore it. And this ideology is, is reinforcing that. What's, and, and what's your heart behind why this is so important? Well, I mean, the heart is the same. It's, it's a desire to see people actually overcome these questions and confusions and struggles and to be able to live with a sense of peace and hope and uh, overcoming. And, you know, the, the point that, that comes back is so what is being claimed? Well, you are essentializing temptation, you know, yes. to say that this, this temptation is who I am. And so once you start to, to move um, the same-sex attraction or homosexuality from, from the category of, of temptation and desire to this is, this is just who I am, I mean, you can do that with any number of sins, and then you're creating an impossible – like, how do you fight against sin when you've so essentialized it to the point where – well, this is just who I am. So when I fall, I'm just living according to my own nature. And I'm just, I just fell prey to the way that I'm naturally constituted rather than yes. I want to overcome this. And I hate the sin that indwells me. And I want to mortify the deeds of the flesh. And I want to see Christ's power made, made more manifest in my life as I seek to, to live righteously and overcome. And and I hope to no longer struggle with this, even within this life. I'm not just looking toward uh, the final glorification, but I'm also looking for gains that I can make at, through Christ's power and, and the grace. It isn't that I just pull myself up by my bootstraps, but sanctification is us responding to Christ and his finished work and us living in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is our active involvement. It isn't just this osmosis of us becoming more holy somehow just by by being being a Christian for longer. I mean, it's it's us growing and and, and uh, maturing and and all of those things. Praise God! You know? Yes, so, like the besetting right. sin is is these. I, I I've often related it to ruts, you know, that you develop, you know, that are like I can back out of my driveway, but if I if I'm kind of off and I go into the grass a little bit, I've created a rut, like in. In 10 seconds, I've created something that it, it will take me probably an hour or more to be able to patch out and, and fix that. And, and it's the same thing with besetting sins, especially if you've gone back to the same rut over and over and over again. Like These aren't things that are easy to disentangle from us. And that's why Paul warns so heavily about the dangers of sexual sin and why the scripture speaks so vehemently against uh, and about being careful with sexual immorality and careful with how we guard our hearts in these situations, because there is there is that spiritual union that's supposed to be happening within the sexual bond between husband and wife. And so when you do that with other things, including yourself and masturbation and pornography and all of these other things, you are you know, setting these ruts pretty deeply in ways that are going to be hard to to, to, they're not just going to smooth over <laughs> with you maintaining a distance from it without some kind of active trying to, to, to overcome it and, and deal with it. Right. Directly. Like, 
you know, like in the PCA, we, uh, you know, if we've, we've had two years and it's going to go on for another until, I mean, it's going to keep going on where we're trying to codify some of this in the, in our book of church order to, to deal with it. And, you know, some of the argument is why are you guys singling out this, this one sin? And I always say, why are you singling out this one sin? Yeah. You act like this one sin is like the one, the one sin that requires compassion and nothing else does. Like, we, we all struggle with something. And I don't say that in, in like, like I was a very, very sinful twenties, you know, most of the decade, like I'm talking beyond the pale debaucherous. I I was horrific. And, and I loved the darkness by the way, but it became addiction. I'm not talking about a chemical addiction. I'm just talking about the party lifestyle and, right. and the situations I was getting in. You know, every once in a while, it's, it's been 20 years, every once in a while, it still wants to rear its head when I hear a song from that time pa- frame or when I go to a place that, you know, like like I'm driving around in an, an area that I might have some memories of. I'm like, praise God, that's not who I am. Yeah. But it, it stirs up things, you know, the idea that it's this one, th- this one sin needs to be treated different from every other sin. You know, I, I understand, you know, so the side B will, uh, they'll say, well, conversion therapy was harmful. And I've heard some nightmare stories of conversion therapy in the 80s and some horrific things like trying to expose uh, boys that were attracted to boys, like to, to pornography of right. uh, like, like uh, the, op, you know, I mean, that's, that's like abusive. That's, you know, you don't combat sin with sin. Sure. And so, but, but I think that was more the. Uh, the exception. I'm not sure that was the rule. Yeah, um, I don't think it was either. You know, I, I mean, I've, I've I've actually even heard of of dads hiring prostitutes for their teenage sons to right. try to. You know, I mean, that's horrific, and we, you know, we need to be able to say that, obviously. But the answer is not then because the church has has done this inappropriately that that also that that means all first of all counseling or or therapy to that regard was was wrong. Yeah. Um. But it also doesn't excuse it for the future, particularly in a generation and day that now there's this confusion. We need we need clarity on on this issue, you know. Right. Yeah, and and with with that is, um, well, I mean the the whole conversion therapy boogeyman often gets brought out because, yep. it, but underneath it isn't just like a, a rejection of certain practices or things. It's fundamentally the idea that you can or should change. And so socially, that's the opposition to re- reparative or conversion therapy is the idea that that a homosexual can change and that he should change and that there should be uh, that there is a normative sexual state that you should be pursuing. And and so that's hated by the culture. But then those same cultural ideas are, are getting carried on by Christians, especially uh, within the side B idea where where they have those latent assumptions and and feelings as well, where they might um, you know reject certain certain statements of practice, but I mean conversion therapy was never this unified whole where there was just you know a certain set of principles that everybody was applying. There were all kinds of things. Yeah, a lot of the Exodus International groups were fine. I mean, they they weren't uh they weren't abusive. And so when Greg and these others want to quote, I don't know if it's a million people have been through conversion therapy. So they want to argue from a, a a sample size of a million 
but the the negative things they're attributing to that million are really f- happening in probably less than one percent of them where they were abusive and harmful and sinful practices you know yeah. i think a lot of it was just the shame the individuals felt that they weren't experiencing changes probably built on a bad theology you know a bad theology of like a holiness theology or something like you and i aren't saying like if you just have enough faith you're going to overcome this i mean i don't right. i don't hear you saying that no. are you <laughs> right we we you know we understand the romans 7 the romans 6 7 8 paradigm of right. you know you are you're not in bondage to sin romans 6 and you're you're you know but but man this struggle i still do the things i don't want to do i do the things i don't want to do and then romans 8 but there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, yet put to death the deeds of the body. You know, yeah. so we get that. And I think, you know, I mean, my own testimony is uh, I grew up, I grew up Catholic, um, actually very traditional Catholic, Melkite Catholic, which is out of the Middle East. Um, it's almost orthodoxy. And uh, but my grandparents and had brought me, they, they had converted. And my, I think my grandmother, my mother took me to a concert in the eighties. It was Ray Boltz. I don't know if you're familiar oh, yeah. with Ray Boltz, mm-hmm. you know, and in the eighties and nineties, he was, he was it. He he did the song, watch the lamb and thank you. And, yeah. uh, you know, I came forward at an altar call, uh, at, at a Ray Boltz conference concert, went, went backstage. He prayed with me, had time with him one-on-one. There might be pictures. I don't know. I was heartbroken mm. in, 2000 uh the early 2000s to yeah. find out he left his wife and his his family his kids were adults at that point and he's like the way he justified it saying like well they understand they want me to be happy right. and so he left like a 20 plus year marriage because he had always he he never kicked you know having these feelings for men you know and so he's just going to live authentically to him that and uh he wrote a song don't tell me how to who to love and mm. you know he became a, the poster child for the side a gay gay movement right and it's uh it's heartbreaking to me but part of that was built on a bad theology that if he just prayed hard enough it was going to all just he was going to be a hundred you know in 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 psychological terms you know straight you know and yet i'm saying bro you had a beautiful wife you procreated had kids Mm-hmm. you're gonna like and you just gave it all up because you're you still have sinful desires like yeah. um but that's because this theology you know right and there's there's the spiritual attack and warfare that's underneath this whole sexuality issue i mean homosexuality is a piece of it but pornography and adultery and fornication and all of that i mean th- there's so much of a spiritual attack that's underneath mm. this that uh, it really bothers me how many Christians de-emphasize that or don't speak about it. or And that was one of those problems that I kept having as I'm reading about these guys in the side B talking about, you know, essentially, I mean, we, we talk about it as their struggle. Some of these guys don't even use that kind of language of struggle. So it's even inaccurate to to put that upon them. But for those who seem to genuinely be wrestling with things and and trying to overcome but feeling 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 like a failure feeling so limited and weak feeling like you can't can't do it i don't see that kind of 
language about you know sin is crouching at the at the door and its desires to, to to rule over you and to to overcome you, and that kind of not just a, living in a sense of fear that I'm going to be overcome by sin, but oftentimes with this whole LGBT thing, like it's this rejection of any sort of sen- sense of guilt or shame, yes. and and with that is overcoming that sense of fearfulness that that there is a spiritual enemy who wants to destroy me and he's going to use this temptation and struggle in certain ways that I'm not even prepared to really counteract and protect myself against and so that just that really it, it it's I mean it's troubling in a spiritual sense but it's also heartbreaking because mm. there are these these stories like the Ray Bolts and and like many who who began within the side B movement trying to have kind of a better position on this, but once you start to essentialize the temptation, and then you're like, well, I was made this way, so essentially I am this way, and so then the, at some point there is that question, who made me this way? And if I'm saying that God made me, then maybe God made me this way. Then why would God, if God made me this way, then why would he then set up a law that says I can't go do this? And so then that restraint to even keep back from pursuing those relationships and that behavior is suddenly loosened because you start to think, well, I'm made this way. I'm supposed to be able to live this out. And I'm looking at all these other people who are able to do this. And then this lifestyle is, is happily embraced and affirmed within society. And I have friends and they seem happy and I'm just miserable and I'm stuck and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be lonely and sad and miserable for my whole life. And so, but I'm, I'm much more happier when I'm with these other people. And when I start to pursue these kinds of relationships, so, you know, and before you know it, that, that conviction of celibacy starts to erode because you're embracing all of these aspects of, of the lifestyle and the culture and the uh, effeminacy and all these things that are presenting yourself as gay and wanting to be identified in that way. And I mean, that's tragic and dangerous. And so yeah, that's, yeah. that's why I reject side B is because it's harming people. It's, it's devastating souls and it's locking people in bondage to, to sinful ideas, but also patterns of behavior and, and thinking that are going to be, you know, that are just with longstanding consequences and with spiritual implications eternally. Yeah, that that's, that's a really good way to say it. And, you know, I've often heard like, well, we don't have a problem with, with, you know, alcoholics going to AA and saying, I'm an alcoholic. Why, why do we have a problem with somebody saying I'm a gay Christian or I'm gay. And, and then we don't have a problem with alcoholics getting together in meeting, you know, support groups and supporting one another. And so why would you have a problem with revoice, you know, providing that support? And I said, well, I mean, alcoholism is, is, is a problem, you know, but it's not on a broad societal scale, redefining what humanity is. Right. It's, um, but but secondly when when support groups for for addiction meet they're not meeting in a bar or in a you know they're not they're they're not meeting with the temptation right there <laughs> yeah. you know but these support groups for these um 
for same-sex attraction or any of sexual sin are meeting with what they're attracted to, pouring out their hearts intimately in those settings, you know. And there's a reason why a lot of people in addiction groups, AA or um, NA, end up getting intimate with one another mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're sharing their deepest sort of struggles with one another. And they, and they feel like they're in connection with those people because those are shared experiences and it leads to often, uh, physical relationships. How much more than in, in a place where you're doing that with somebody you're sexually and intimately already attracted to, you know? So there's all kinds of issues with this. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, so tell, tell us a little bit about dangerous affirmations um this book it came out just a a couple months ago right yeah it came out in august and it's so a little leaven deals with the whole side b revoice question dangerous affirmation deals with the the overall issue of gay christianity and i define gay christianity as the attempt to reconcile at some level homosexuality with the christian faith and so Mm -hmm. that can happen through the side a gay affirming church that can happen through side b and the whole revoice movement that can happen through things like queer theology and then there's additional uh political activist implications that are underneath a lot of this movement to to move the church toward accepting homosexuality at some level because it moves the church away from being a force for righteousness and to stand against the lgbt tide in society and loosens them loosens that stance to either just silence or passivity or to full on um you know endorsement and celebration mm-hmm. and activism even within some sense within the church so that's that's what the book is about and tries to cover um in a way that is um that hopefully helpful for people in explaining a lot of the current trends and movements and things that have happened maybe that they haven't even seen over the last 10 or 15 years and the the newest ways in which language has shifted and and some of the things have have changed in this conversation from because I honestly I was a little frustrated with reading some of the Christian books on the topic because it felt like they were one ignoring the side B issue and I I get that it's it's newer but it has been at least articulated going back to the early 2010s in in certain ways but it, I mean I think its origins precede that even further but there was a lack of acknowledgement over some of those things and then just some of the current ways that the debate uh, has shifted uh, as a result of living in a post-Obergefell society mm-hmm. where, where gay marriage is now the law of the land. And, of course, the Respect for Marriage Act just being signed and all the, the celebratory things being said and, and stated around that just currently. Um, so uh, that's that's what I was trying to do with that because – you know, from one side, you can look at it at a theological angle, and, and we do. You know, I, I mean, I talk about the, the so-called clobber passages and and the, the statements that um, the activists and, and gay-affirming theologians have tried to make to make the case that the Bible is gay-affirming and try and dismantle those and, and, and show the, the biblical truth um, that counteracts that. But I felt like you can't talk about this whole issue without dealing at some level with the politics, because things like Mm. the Obergefell decision have implications on Christians and churches, because now it just normalizes this at a societal level. I mean, you were talking about 
stats of of of, uh, of high school students who identify it within the LGBT spectrum. Well, that mm-hmm. wasn't the case in 2015. You know, those things have have right. increased as society has become both more affirming, more accepting, and these things are just more normalized. And now you have a special class of people who are getting additional recognition. And so, yes, I mean, there's there's faddish things behind that where people want to to say, well, I, I'm a certain personality, and the, and you also realize that. Those are hidden things too. Like you can't, you can say I identify as a bisexual, and you never have to prove it. You know, you can say, mm-hmm. "Well, I, I feel like I'm," and and if all of these things are fluid too, then you can um, you can kind of bounce around to different things, trying to define your your very individual personality feelings at any particular moment. So to to overlook the political side of this, I feel like does a disservice to Christians trying to understand the totality of the issue and how we got here uh, and what, because I do believe that the left, the political left has an agenda, which is to create more activists and to, to accomplish their political goals within society because politics is their God. So Mm. when you think in that, in those terms, then Everything that happens within the mainline churches has political implications, and then things that are even happening within conservative churches also have political implications, and you can't just remove it because you want to say, well, Christians you know, need to have different views of politics or whatever, or um, you have to realize that all of these things are packaged together, and like so – to, to completely avoid that part of the conversation leaves us lacking in terms of our understanding of it as well as our response to it. So that's that's what I was trying to accomplish with Dangerous Affirmation was to deal with the the – to try and define many of these different things uh, within the gay Christian movement to give you some of the history behind it. To, where did this whole concept of orientation come from? How have different um, – sociologists and scientists Mm. describe this at certain points in history so that you can understand now how that that concept of sexual orientation is being deployed to create a civil rights category and so then there's particular implications for you as an individual Mm. but then that gets rolled into things like the whole side b conversation where someone has defined a whole new category of personhood that's really based on this uh, this very activist implication to try to remove sodomy laws initially, like I was alluding to earlier. What year, what year was that? There were many sodomy laws that sought to be removed after the Alfred Kinsey's reports in the 1940s. Yep. And so there was immediately like civil implications to his quote-unquote unbiased scientific research. And he, he presented himself as this unbiased, you know, just objective scientist. I'm just presenting to you the reality that people aren't as clean cut as you assumed that they were. And so therefore laws need to change and education needs to change and politics needs to change and religion needs to change to try and accommodate just the, the raw data that I've just dumped on you through, uh, yeah, through my sex. Yeah. So I, I, I like I said, I read uh, a little 11, actually I listened to it. So to anybody listening, you can, uh, if you're a podcast person, you can actually, um, just listen to those, uh, yeah, afa.net forward slash a little 11 is the website. Yeah, there you go. The, and, uh, or you, or you could get, I think you could download it as a PDF, yeah, right? A PDF is free yeah. to download. I'm very interested in that, in sort of that progression. I, I've, uh, when I taught through the human sexuality report with the congregation, 
and those are all on our, our website also if anyone's interested. But uh, I, I laid out my own timeline, and I know I was just piece cobbling it together. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, st- I started back with Freud. Yeah. But when you see in the '60s the coming out of the birth control pill, and then the '70s with Roe versus Wade. Yeah. What both of those things did was decoupled sex from having kids. Yeah. And then with no fault divorce, it really sort of decoupled sex from marriage. And then you just fast forward and now we've decoupled sex from gender, (laughs) you know, dealing with the sexual revolution, like you were, you were talking about there. I mean, there's so many additional threads, you know, beyond just the homosexual issue that have just wrecked havoc on society. Sexuality is such a, a, I guess, a unique aspect of God's creation for individuals. And yet it's also such a, a dangerous spiritual issue that it is different than talking about some other sins and some other um some other things that we could do that are wrong because it is more serious yeah god god always holds it up as more serious there's just many things that come along with once our society starts to embrace the looseness around that and a freedom to live however you want to live and to redefine those terms and um all that is just but to to help people understand once again side a is is simply saying that um homosexuality and christianity are not in conflict with one another you can um live this out in uh dedic uh devoted same sex relationships can be lived out in a christian context we we obviously reject it side b rejects that too but what side b says is not simply that the desire exists and you just need to remain celibate and i prefer the word chaste but mm-hmm. but side b adds the desire exists and it's creates this category whether it's orientation or in essence mm-hmm. um a hard-coded feature that's more than simply experience and a struggle and that's what we're rejecting we're not rejecting that the desire exists and is unwanted we're rejecting that it puts you in a different box um, beyond simply experience, that it creates another category of personhood or humanity. And that's why Revoice will, you know, they, they will hold out or they have held out some of their speakers, you know, that, that there are certain in, things inherent in gayness that are a blessing, mm-hmm. um, a heightened um, appreciation for aesthetics and the arts, uh, a heightened appreciation for friendship and relationship. Um and all kinds of things. Grant Hartley is 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 yeah. is big in this kind of stuff. Uh, Wesley Hill, I think, is big on the spiritual friendship thing. Mm-hmm. And so you can have committed, devoted, same-sex relationships as long as they're not sexual. And now Greg Johnson is is affirming those things. I don't know if you've seen the latest podcast where he said, you know, it, it, oh, you got to listen to that. He said if uh, if a couple. If a gay couple came to the church, his goal would not be to break them up, oh, but it yeah. would be to desexualize the relationship. I did see that clip, yeah. And the problem with that is that's Neoplatonism, right? I mean, that's a Platonic view of the world. That what ma- what matters is is that just don't do the physical, right? Um, but marriage is more than simply physical. There's there's an intimacy there that is unique to marriage. Mm-hmm. And and Greg, you know, said that too. He kind of held up some of his intimate friendships as more intimate than a lot of married couples' marriages. 
Well, yeah, I, there's no doubt that that exists because there's a lot of marriages that are that are struggling. But I have a lot of, like he said, I could have six hour conversations on uh, with a friend when I'm like, yeah, I have I have dudes I hang out with that I could share very deep stuff with, and we could sit and hang out and talk for hours too. I would never compare that with the um, non sexual intimacy I have with my wife, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so, you know, these things are not these things are not okay. Uh, you don't have pseudo marriages where you just don't have sex. Right. But really just pastorally, Beckett Cook's uh, a change of affection. So Beckett Cook was a set designer and, and also more in Hollywood. Like he was in L.A. He's was living this lifestyle. I don't know if he was actually married to a guy, but he lived in a marriage like arrangement with a guy for for many years. And when he came to Christ, like he he left it, you know because he would attribute it all to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the idea that to reach the city and to reach the culture, we have to accommodate our language and adopt their categories. He's in LA doing this, right? He's in LA saying he rejects the personhood categorization of sexuality. And that's exactly what Greg Johnson and and Nate Collins and these people are saying we can't do in the cities because they'll never understand and uh Beckett is is uh I mean he's reaching people in the film industry and in the music industry and in the fashion industry and he's doing it. So this book why it's good is it gives his testimony but it also uh he answers these questions that you, that you're having. And so I'll work with through that book with people who have these struggles or who have kids or family members with those struggles because we do want to deal with this issue pastorally. Mm-hmm. Uh any thoughts on on any of that? Yeah, and, MD. and I, I appreciate Beckett, and he he appreciated my book, too. Uh, we had a good podcast about it where he invited me on to talk about it. And, um, you know, I think it is good to hold up models of people who, who have overcome and who are who have found Christ and are living in, in, in freedom and are able to articulate the theological things but also articulate aspects of, of who they were at that time with now a, a, a theological and, and spiritual lens that has been informed by scripture and by the work of the Holy spirit in their lives. And so, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it is, and that's also, you know, missing from, from the side B conversation. You know, there were, <laughs> there are a number of people who've overcome homosexuality who talk about it freely. And, and, you know, the guy who did the, the forward in my book, Stephen, Stephen Black, I mean, he does counseling and, and deals with people on these issues. I mean, he was a former homosexual and can talk about, you know, the, the great darkness of the homosexual lifestyle as well as just the amazing <laughs> grace of God shown toward him as a sinner and, and you know, the, the ways in which Christ can restore and brought a, a woman into his life that he shared his w- life with now in marriage and, and children and family and and the ways mm. that he's seen other men and women overcome and be able to live with some degree of freedom in their life regarding uh, regarding the, the sexuality struggle, and so that you know that, that? that what you just yeah what you just hit on is so is so important because like you know I, I've I've only been in North Carolina for four years but uh, and I'm a South Floridian and so you know uh, we had a we had a lot of people in our church back home that had this struggle and and they were everywhere on the kind of spectrum of how you'd view it. And this one, uh, one guy I was close friends with, you know, I, I saw him as the latest sort of 
psychological new thing was coming out. Like he, he moved with the, um, I'm not gay to, um, same sex attracted to then I'm gay, like whatever. So Mm -hmm. as this thing moves, there are, there are people in the struggle. They're, they're searching for answers and they're just moving with the thing, you know? And I have a theory that by the way, side B is, is going to be gone in five to 10 years. And the, the reason for that is, I just don't think it's going to appeal or apply to anybody. It, I think it applies to this narrow generation of people that are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s now who grew up in a conservative household who understood that uh, sexuality is meant to be between a man and a woman in marriage. And so they've always had this sort of guilt. And now society and culture has said, this is, this is a category of identity. It's a protected class now. I mean, we know that you know, it's like, and so they're trying to harmonize Judeo Christian values with, with that. I don't think this next generation is going to have that. The next generation is growing up in a world where there's no, who, who would question these things? Right. You know, like that sexual, like this is who I am, like the whole Carl Truman project, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, rise and triumph of the modern self. If this is who I am, then I have to live authentic to that. There's no going to be any side B position. You either reject, reject it altogether, which puts you in like a more Beckett or Rosaria position, or your side A. I, I just, I think this is going away. Yeah, and when you think about, I mean, if gender is fluid and and people are taking on more fluid and less defined language around gender, but sexual orientation is held up as this innate and immutable category that has no fluidity within it or very limited <clears throat> fluidity within it. Uh, but you're talking about sexual desires that can be cultivated in all kinds of different ways, and people are developing all kinds of sexual orientation categories to try and describe these various little nuances or subtleties of desire or attraction and people who talk about that, uh, you know, I mean, th- there's a whole category of orientation that says I'm attracted to people that I have gotten to know personally at a deep emotional level first, <laughs> and then I develop a sexual desire for them. You know, like that's a that's a category of orientation w- within the, the orientation category. Like that's a specific sexual orientation that people are claiming. I mean, y- but part of the rigidness of that category to go back to the political thing it, like that exists to create a civil rights group that yes. where you can you can enshrine these things in law and protect them and then once you've done that and kind of calcified it in that sense then people will move away from i think the hardline edges of this orientation idea and the younger generations mm. are already doing that where people are like well I don't even know how to define the orientation that I have because I have certain desires for certain kinds of people, but then I, I desire this other kind of person and that puts me in a weird thing. So like, you know, just even the language around that is, is hard to define because you're talking about, or you have been talking about well-defined categories of gay, straight, bisexual, but then there's a whole spectrum of different orientations and desires that people are trying to. I think this is like really hint, like this whole thing, what's going on in our country is hindering our ability to really study what's going on because we're trying to affirm, you know, but you know, what porn has done to people, uh, how, how old are you? I'm 39. Okay. Uh, so you, you, you probably experienced this too. Like, you know, I grew up, there was no internet. There's no, uh, I'm 47, almost 48, uh, no internet, no cell phones. I mean, if you were gonna, uh, 
seen, you know, nudie pictures. It was because your friend's dad had playboys and they found them in the closet, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but now with these things, I mean, I, I taught in a right. Christian high school 10 years ago and there were kids in ninth grade saying they overcame a porn addiction. Mm -hmm. So how old were they that they had this porn? You know, it's again, middle school, right? And so hasn't gotten past me that all this sort of gender confusion has also risen about as pornography has become more prolific. And, and when I say pornography, again, not like still images of women in a Playboy magazine, but like real sex acts mm -hmm. between real human beings and the number of young people looking at these. And so if you associate both naked forms <laughs> with arousal, mm -hmm. is it any surprise then you're getting aroused by the same sex? You're watching them be aroused. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and, I, and I've talked to guys that have experienced this that said the more porn they watched, the more they had attraction for the same sex because they're watching sex, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they had the programming on our brains, like the idea that this is like just something, you know, that it's just simply nature and it's not nurture is, is preventing us from actually really understanding and having the real discussions about what porn and what this ideology is actually producing in society and in kids. Yeah. There's a, there's a book called forgetting how to blush by um, a lady named Karen Booth. And uh, she's, she's a Methodist and she's writing about the history of the United Methodist church embracing Kinsey's Alfred Kinsey's ideas and mm. um, the ways in which um, homosexuality came to be embraced and affirmed within within the denomination and one of I mean there's a number of of really shocking statements and revelations that come out in the history that she's out, outlining there but one of them is this guy was um, was a Methodist minister and he one of the and he was a gay activist or, uh, you know, promoting gay rights and stuff in the 70s. And one of the things that he did was he took um, seminary students and took them to, to a gay porn theater and had them watch gay pornography so that they would be desensitized to the sex acts and th therefore mm -hmm. be more willing and more empathetic to, to the gay rights cause in society. You know, like pornography being instituted in one particular case to, I mean, in a shocking, you know, like, I mean, that's a terrible, wicked thing. Yeah. But, you know, trying to take pastors who might have a more prudish sensibility or, or have, you know, these sorts of things and basically to just ha have them experience a whole lot of gay pornography so that then they would become more sensitive to these social issues that they wanted them to politically hold to. And, and, and uh, of course it worked, but, uh, you know, and I don't know how widespread that practice was but i mean there's at least one ins incidence of it happening and that's it, you know to your point like the, the pornography desensitizing people to the sex acts themselves but also opening them up to other sexual possibilities and mm -hmm. other other forms of temptation and like with with many other addictive habits i mean you start you start simple with just naked flesh but then you start to seek out sex acts and then you start to seek out certain kinds of sex acts and then you you are introduced to all kinds of the the wide array of things that are available is just shocking and and 
and really sad. And I, I like to bring it uh, back to Calvin and the, the, the three uses of the law. You know, that, that second use of restraining evil in society, Romans 13, the power of the sword, but also conscience, mm -hmm. you know, like, so you talked about not, you know, losing the ability to blush or Kevin DeYoung wrote an article on um, stigma, mm -hmm. like the, the, like that stigma is not a bad thing, right. you know, uh, it can be, but that it doesn't have to be. And so I think what we've seen in society with Obergefell, because that's what they wanted. They wanted gay marriage, right? It wasn't about civil unions. It was about acceptance in society of this is, is a valid thing. Well, there's no more stigma and there's no more law. And so there's more room to explore, mm -hmm. you know? And again, I said I was bullied when I was in middle school. And I mean, I'm glad there was still stigma, you know, because w when there were, there was a period where I wasn't fitting in with, with peers and stuff. And, um, I'm glad nobody encouraged me to explore other gender ideologies, you know, so it's like, you know, you have to fight through it. And then, you know, then I grew big in high school. And by the time I was a senior like that, you know, all those, uh, nobody was bullying me anymore, but <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, not being able to speak with clarity on this issue, this issue is, is promoting it. And, you know, I said the, the PCA, I, this is a legacy of the PCA. And, and, and I say that, and I want people to hear that because it's like, the PCA should not be a think tank for these new sinful ideologies to, to try to work them out, you know, and uh, Covenant Seminary was, you know, had Wesley Hill in 2014 and David Gill, who goes by gay worship leader, came out of there. And and like the roots going back to in, in, in St. Louis through Covenant Seminary Memorial um, Presbyterian Church and Greg Johnson it goes back to the beginning. You know, everybody wants this deniability saying revoice isn't a PCA thing. Really? The founders were in the PCA. It was hosted at PCA church. The worship leader came from our seminary. Um, some, the first speakers were speakers at the seminary years before. And so this definitely is, a, we are complicit in this writing in Christianity Today and USA Today and going on NPR and promoting this ideology. This very much is a PCA thing. It's It, it, it grieves me. It saddens me. And now that that church and, and Greg Johnson have left the PCA, there are guys on the left that are blaming us. It's not just a misunderstanding. And you can't use language in two different ways and, and, and think that's okay. So I'm I'm grateful for you, man. I love that you're a ruling elder at your church. We didn't really get to explore that at all. But what what I love is, and this is what my heart is, is that I want ruling el more ruling elders to be aware of the issues. And a lot of churches they're they're just not, um, you know, and and uh, they they view their role as the local church only, and they don't realize that we need your votes and we need you to be informed denominationally. And so the fact that you're on the you know, the front lines of, of this and producing media and works around this are, are very important because I don't think, you know, side B may be going away, but this isn't going away. And maybe side B is not going away. I don't know. But also just in talking to you yesterday, I loved hearing your heart about how you were discipling. A, a, I guess it's a young man in your congregation. Mm -hmm. And what's cool is I love that you grew up in a church. Your dad's an elder at that church. And now you're an elder at that church, you know? Yeah, And so, and now you're carrying on that legacy to another uh, young guy. And so what book are you reading together with him? And is he, I guess he's considering the ministry. Yeah, he, he's considering the ministry and he's planning to go to, to uh, Reformation Bible College here soon. But we're, we're reading the memoirs and remains of Robert Murray McShane, 
uh, by Andrew nice. um together as he's considering that call and, you know, just reading chapter one of that book that um, has, I mean, Andrew Bernard is giving commentary on it, but it's also a lot of the, the journals of, uh, of McShane and just his own reflections as he's, he's weighing his own call to the ministry. I just feel like will be so beneficial. We're supposed to meet tonight to talk about it, but oh, it's great. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, when you think about the, the work of the, the ruling elder, you know, I mean, I, I'm in a unique position in that I work for, for a parachurch ministry and have the ability to put in a lot of time and effort in the research side of it. And, um, but I did that to try and, and help Christians across the church. I didn't do it specifically as a PCA effort. Um, you know, AFA is a, a broadly evangelical ministry. So, I mean, there's, there's Methodists and Wesleyans who are benefiting from what I'm doing. There's PCA and reform people who are benefiting from it. There's Southern Baptists and non-denominational people who are reading it and, and starting to see their, these issues within their own context, whether that's a Southern Baptist church or an Acts 29 church or what have you. Like there's just, uh, these things are affecting beyond just even the PCA. I mean, there's, there's implications in all kinds of areas. And then there's the, you know, the bigger, the Methodist church, of course, is dealing with its, with uh, the, the side A issue as well. And some people are dealing with that. So I'm I, just, it's an amazing privilege to be able to be able to give that much time and effort and focus onto something to try and explain it to others so that they understand mm. what's behind it. And so I do hope it's a benefit to people and that, and that they take advantage of the resources that are there so that um so that you can be informed and and hopefully you know the lord will use that and you can you can take aspects of of what what i've done to to try and articulate these things to to w whatever situation you're in and and whatever context of of um problem no i i i love that i love that and that's that's important like the the previous interview i did for this podcast was um was our clerk of session and uh he works in county government he's a, a the, the uh transportation director for our county you know so yeah you're in a unique yeah. spot because you're working in a parachurch and for a while as when I was a ruling elder because I was a ruling elder first uh I was working as a Christian school administrator mm -hmm. you know so so uh we get to bring those perspectives but I think what's really neat is how you view it as connected to the church even if it's not PCA specific, and yet we get to benefit from it. I was glad when you reached out. I knew you. I knew of you. Um, you reached out after you read an article I wrote somewhere. Mm -hmm. And again, my articles are mostly just blog posts. But I was like, oh yeah, man, I've heard MD before. I've heard him on. A, uh, he's been on Presbycast. I see his stuff referenced. I heard of a little Levin. I hadn't read it at that point. And then uh, when I saw you on Beckett's podcast, I said, that's awesome. So. I was glad to have you on. I really appreciate it. and I think we can have uh we can have more conversations but um yeah. tell everybody one more time where they can get your resources uh because yeah, just tell them. So a little leaven is a free PDF and audiobook. It can be found at afa.net/a little leaven. And then Dangerous Affirmation, the book that you're holding there is is an actual book for purchase and it can be found at dangerousaffirmation.net. It's not available on Amazon at this time. So you've got to Oh no, you're you're no no, you're not right. I I went on Amazon and I uh, I found one copy for $103. Oh, okay. So. Well. I don't get so, any royalties on that one hundred and three dollars. I I couldn't believe it. It was I, I, you know I guess some private seller must be yeah must be selling yeah, it. Some, um, so I'm gonna yeah. 
This one's autographed. I may buy one from you and uh, and then resell it for $103. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I appreciate it. Uh, God bless your work. I don't know. Will I see you at GA this year? Uh, Do you I'm, go? I'm not sure. It, it is close because it'll be in Memphis, but um, you know, we'll see. I've, I've got a number of things I'm going uh, that I'm working on this summer, so we'll see if I'm able to make it or not. Cool. It'd be great to it'd it be great be. to see you there, and maybe I'll we'll have you on again. So uh, w- with that, I'm going to sign off. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchmen, where we have conversations with ruling elders for ruling elders, connecting our work to ministry and ministry to work. Signing off. Thanks, MD. Thanks.